It's four o'clock on a Monday, and you know what that means. It's time for another exciting episode of Taxi TV Live. This week, starring me again, doing Taxi 101 for new members, part two. Yeah, a delayed reaction. And thank you, fake band. You guys are amazing audience. I love you. Welcome back to the big show. Hello, everybody in the chat room. Yes, uh, Robbie Hancock, Gloria, piano, guitar, voice teacher, Peter Rayhill, Wind Chimes, Anne House, Fen Tamalonis. I've been practicing your name. Uh, Linda Collum, Carl Wurzbach. Hello, one and all. Um, I'm excited, actually, to do Taxi for New Members 101, or Taxi 101 for New Members Part 2 because last time I thought I was going pretty quickly, but I only got through about 40% of the questions that uh, I have written out. So without any further ado, I'm gonna jump right in. Oh, I do wanna tell you there is no show next week because it is Memorial Day weekend here in the good old United States. And so we're taking the day off. We love holidays. Um, and then two weeks from now, if I'm not mistaken, I'm doing this from memory, hold on. I've got my trusty calendar right here. Two weeks from now, on June 4th, we are going to have a special guest who I think is one of the smartest people in uh, film and TV music uh, ever. He, he's just, he's brilliant, he's smart, he's likable. Um, love everything about him, and he will be on the big show. He's actually flying in from another city to do it. So I'm very excited about that. All right. All that said, we are getting ready to fire off all these answers on this very long list. And the first one is, what should I do if I never get forwarded? The answer is quit. Just go home with your tail between your legs. I'm kidding. I am kidding. You know, I would say that there are very few people who give it real effort over a period of time and end up never getting forwarded. Yes, there are some people out there in the world who just don't have it, that thing, but especially in the film and TV market, especially in the instrumental side of the film and TV market, it's not like you've gotta be you know, some brilliant uh, composer. Um, they're not looking for uh, the next Hans Zimmer for you know instrumental things for reality TV shows. Um, the bar d gets different and higher, I guess, for songs, um, for record labels and artists. But for the, what I think is the easiest, fastest way to make income, which is very inspiring for people when they start to see results with getting instrumental tracks in reality TV shows, that inspires them, it gives them confidence, and they go on to other things. So even if you have a long streak of not getting forwarded, hang in there. But do the thing that I tell you to do over and over, which is hang out in the taxi forum at forumswithans.taxi.com. Get to know your fellow members. I was just looking for stuff for our newsletter today. Saw a million comments in there about how important that forum has been to people's growth and ultimately their success. So I'm telling you, I know it sounds like, you know, oh, come on, a forum can do that for me. It's not the forum itself, it's the people who populate the forum. They're very generous, they're very smart, and they're experienced. So that's how you get forwarded, is by working a lot, 
working over a long period of time and getting input and advice from your fellow members, going to the Taxi Road Rally, and of course, watching Taxi TV. Um, let's see, what do comments on the feedback forms mean? Um, you know, we get all kinds of feedback about our feedback. People say, oh, geez, I've, I've gotten different feedback on the same song from two different screeners. One of them says he loves the verse. Another one says she loves the chorus. And yet another one says, I think the vocal might be a little pitchy. Well, come on. If three of us went to the Louvre and looked at the Mona Lisa, we would, you know, one of us may love her skin tone, one may love her smile, another one may love the, the shadow or the shading or whatever. Um, all three of the comments are valid, and you have to remember that all three of them were made in the context of three different submissions for three different listings. So it's not like one of those people, one of the screeners is wrong and the other one's right, the person who loved the chorus is wrong, the person who loved the verse is right. It just means they notice different things. And remember, the box that's really important, the comment that's most important, and this exists both in our long form and our short form, short form critiques, is the box that says the reason you were not forwarded is. Because the, the screener may make may comment about a little pitchiness in the vocal or the guitar playing was a little too busy for TV work. Um, it doesn't necessarily mean that that's the reason that you weren't forwarded. It means that that's something they noticed. They thought, oh, you know what? I should let him or her know about that. So they do it uh, more as a kind of a you know, doing you solid uh, and not like giving you a, a list of reasons that you have failed. They're trying to help you get forwarded next time. So take it with a grain of salt and just know that you're likely to get different comments from different screeners within the context of different listings at different times. People want to know, you know, gee, um, are the screeners affected by things like a fight with their spouse or not enough coffee or a bad commute? I would say that anybody can be affected by those things, but I know all the screeners personally, I've known you know various screeners for 26 years now. There've been very, very, very few, I'm talking like less than a handful of them and we're up to like 350 of them that have worked here. Uh, very, very, maybe even higher than that, like 380 of them, I don't know, anyway, they're professionals and they're not forwarding music based on their taste. They're forwarding music based on your, how close you got to the target, um, the stylistic target or whatever, uh, you know, the context of the listing, what it asked for. And is your music good? If you meet those two criteria, this is really good and it's really what they're asking for, you will get forwarded. And I would, I would bet you my house that if we tried that a thousand times, a thousand different screeners, that like 980 of those times, they're gonna make the right decision and they're not gonna be affected by a fight with their spouse or a cup of bad coffee, okay? Um, what is a custom critique? This is something that people remind me all too often that I do not talk about frequently enough. Custom critiques are something that we invented probably 20 some years ago. Uh, it's a critique that you get, you submit for a custom. There's a way to do it on our website. Uh, do you know off the top of your head, Bria, how? Yeah, you just go under um, My Music and then click uh, Get Custom Critique from the homepage. 
Okay, so if you're on the Taxi Music homepage, not taxi.com, but the taximusic.com homepage, you go under My Music and select Custom Critique. Sorry, I think I've got a, a rock star burp coming. Uh, a custom critique is not for a particular listing. It's more in-depth feedback. And frankly, maybe one of the reasons I don't push it is we lose money on them because the screeners get carried away in a good way um, for you and give very um, elaborative feedback uh, that we almost always, I don't think I've ever gotten bad feedback on custom critique feedback. Um, they spend a lot of time. Um, and they usually spend way more time than the amount of money. It's, it's 20 bucks a song for a custom critique. And I've had people write to me and say, I've paid $100 or $150 to get a, you know industry pro critique from somebody else, and your $20 custom critique was far better. So I suggest using it if you've got something new. Here's a great way to use custom critiques. Let's say that you are pitching or you have a song that you just wrote and you'd like to eventually pitch it to pop artists who are on the charts and signed to major labels. Before you go to the trouble of demoing it, send it in. Just send in a piano vocal or a guitar vocal or a very stripped down version of it and ask the screener, because you can ask questions in advance, You know, can you tell me if the song form is good? Is the lyric good? Is this thing in the kind of shape that I should proceed and go ahead and do a full demo on it? Um, it always broke my heart back when people would do, it still breaks my heart, when people do full-on CDs, go to the trouble and expense of producing it, and then press up a thousand copies of it, and I hear it and go, ah, that song would be so much better if it had a bridge, or this song would be better if the chorus popped out more. These are the kinds of things that you can use Taxi's incredibly good and detailed um, A&R staff to get feedback on before you go to the trouble of finishing a full production on something. So that's what a custom critique is. And uh, again, go to taximusic.com. Go to My Music. Is that it? Under, yeah, hover your mouse over My Music. Hover your mouse over and then My Music. And click Get Custom Critique. And then click Get Custom Critique. Okay. Uh, can you pitch? I should restate that. Can I, as a taxi member, pitch the same music to more than one opportunity? Of course you can. Uh, I don't know why people have this misconception. I, I kind of understand it, I guess, but here's the deal. Uh, people will pitch something. For, let's say that it's a acoustic singer-songwriter song uh, with a male vocal about going home. And the taxi member sees a listing and says, oh, this is perfect for that. I'm going to pitch it for that. Then they see another listing 12 days later while the first one is still pending because the deadline hasn't hit. And they go, gee, I don't think I can submit that to the second listing. Absolutely you can. Um, you want to get your music out to as many places, as many people and entities as you possibly can, so you can pitch it everywhere. The only time you can't pitch it is if it's signed exclusively to somebody. Once that happens, then you can no longer pitch it, or you shouldn't ever pitch it to anybody else because it's already the, you know, the property, if you will, of that publisher who signed it exclusively. So yes, pitching to more than one opportunity is not only kosher, I recommend it. Um, what should I do if a company reaches out to me after getting my music through Taxi? Don't do anything dopey. That's the best advice I can give you. Some people get so freaked out in a good way that finally after a lifetime of wanting somebody in the industry to go, you're good enough. I want your music. I love what you're doing. 
and they get that phone call or they get that email, it's like, holy crap, <laughs> they just go into a tizzy and they panic a lot of times. <laughs> First thing you can do is if you have questions, call us. You know, we're not lawyers. We can't give you any legal advice. We can't negotiate a deal for you, but we can tell you if the deal you're being offered from a company is a pretty standard deal, which by the way, in the realm of music libraries or production music libraries, the deals do run fairly standard. Um, and oftentimes they don't like to negotiate a contract for you um, because you've got a friend who's a music attorney, it means real estate attorney in Indiana, uh, and they took a couple of music course, music law courses during the, you know, their time in law school. Um, they don't know the particulars. They don't know the norms. They don't know, oh, I could throw out a big word. They don't know what is normative in the production music library realm. So while they may have good advice about a normal regular publishing deal like you would sign with a big entity like sony or warner, warner chapel or universal in the context of here sign my song then pitch it to a big charting artist that's a whole different thing than sign my instrumental and get it into a reality tv show so people get offered deals and they go oh my god they want a hundred percent of the publisher's share I'm not doing that because I learned in a course that I took 20 years ago, or my friend who's a music attorney told me that uh, I should never give up any of my publishing. Well, there are plenty of times that you do give up publishing and it's not a dumb move and nobody's trying to screw anybody. Frankly, these libraries have so many people that are pitching music to them that they really don't care. If you say to them, well, I don't want to give up my publishing, they'll go, okay, I can respect that. I'm moving on to the next person. The only times in my experience or in my observation that they will negotiate with somebody is if that person is well-established. And I'm talking well-established, like hundreds or maybe even a couple thousand tracks out there in several different libraries. The people that are over the six-figure line and are consistently hitting home runs for certain libraries Yes, you may have a little bit of negotiating power with that library where, um, you know, after your 10th go round with them and you're making them a lot of money, you may be able to um, negotiate for something like, uh, you know, uh, giving up less, a smaller percentage of your publisher's share. Um, you may be able to negotiate a three-year reversion instead of a five-year or five-year instead of being in perpetuity, which means for um, so, uh, but you, you can't go in there as a newbie and, and they're, it's not like they're trying to screw you. It's just, they have a template. Um, you know, you got to figure, let's say they've got 5,000, 10,000, 20,000, a hundred thousand pieces of music in their catalog. If they did a slightly different contract or version of their contract for each one of those composers or artists or pieces of music, how could they ever keep track of that? So the bottom line is basically it's a cookie cutter thing. It's a take it or leave it deal. And then if you become one of the all-stars uh, in their catalog, maybe they've got 10 or 20 all-stars that they allow, uh, will make a better deal. And the reason they do that is they don't want them to take their best material to another company. So become an all-star, then we can talk, all right? Um, so what, what should you do? Going back to the original question, what should you do if a company reaches out to you? Uh, remember when I said, don't be dopey? I meant it. Uh, act professional. 
Um, it's okay to be a little excited. You know, if you're like, wow, this is so exciting, they're not going to think any less of you. They'll appreciate the fact that you're excited. But um, don't suck a lot of their time in the form of emails, back and forth emails, back and forth phone calls. I know it's all new to you. I know it's very exciting. And you'll have a million questions. The best thing you can do is give it a beat. You know, take an hour and go outside and do the happy dance and then come back in and send them a very polite, short, very short, like two sentence email saying, thank you so much for the offer. I'll let you know by tomorrow. Um, or you could say, thank you very much for the offer. Could you please send me a copy of the contract I'd be signing? Um, then go to the taxi forum and ask your fellow members. Now, don't put the company's name in the forum because then everybody will run over there and go, hey, I heard your sign and stuff. Want mine too? So you don't want to create a, a you know, a, a stampede uh, of other people going there, but you could um, uh, send a private message to other people from the forum that you know because you're a regular on the forum and you know this person's experience, that person's experience. Send them a private message and say, hey, have you ever signed a deal with XYZ Library? The bullet points are they're asking for 100% of the publisher's share. It's in perpetuity, blah, 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 blah. Would you do that deal? And they're liable to say, yeah, as a matter of fact, I've already signed with that library and they're a good solid library. They've done right by me. That's the way it goes. Not that hard. So that's what you do. Remember, don't ask them a million questions. Don't, you're not the only composer or artist in their life. You're not the only person that they're doing business with that day. They just don't have the time or the bandwidth to sit there and give you like a college level education on the ins and outs of library music and the particulars of their deal. So basically, go on the forum, ask your fellow members. You're going to get the right answers there, I believe. Next question. I'm reading this over. How do I know? Oh, how do I know that the companies who've offered me that deal are not trying to screw me? Um, or do badly by me. I'm trying to think of a nicer way to, than saying screw me. But they look, first of all, we check out the companies we run the listings for. And as I've probably said on the show a bunch of times, I think we've had two or three that have surprised us. And we were like, wah, 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 wah. I wish we hadn't run the listing for that company. But I think we're easily in the two to 3,000 company realm of entities that we've run listings for over our 26 years of being in business. And like I said, two or three of them where they told us it was X and then they ran the listing and then our members started calling going, what the listing said is not what they're offering me. Well, they changed their minds, they changed their deal, they didn't tell us, they made us look bad, so we never worked with them again because we like to look great all the time. Not just most of the time, but 100% of the time. So we check out the companies, we look and see what kind of shows they're working with, we will reach out to members that we know have signed deals with this company, before and say, how, you know, how have they treated you? Sometimes we find out they're great at placing songs with lyrics, but they're really not, you know, that good at placing instrumental music in reality shows or vice versa. So we find these things out and we base our decision whether or not to run listings for them based on our research. And um, so you know that somebody has done the research that you would have to do on your own. And it's us, we're experienced. So. Um, just know that, yeah, we've had a couple squeak through, but the vast, vast, vast majority of the companies are in fact kosher. 
And I want to let you know, I'm going to make this another question. Um, are 50-50 deals common in the realm of production music library stuff? And the answer to that is yes. It's so incredibly common that you're offered a deal where they get 100% of the publisher's share, you keep 100% of the writer's share. If they make a buck, you make a buck. Happens all the time. Don't listen to your Uncle George or your friend who's a real estate lawyer that went to law school. Um, they don't know what the normal. Normative is my favorite new word of the day. Um, what is a typical publishing deal versus a film and TV or music library publishing deal? <laughs> I have a note, explain the local lawyer syndrome. I think I did that already. Uh, a regular publishing deal in the industry that I grew up in was that a publisher like Universal would sign a writer and say, here's a $100,000 a year advance and you have to turn in 12 songs that you have written 100% on your own per year and the songs have to be have to be approved by us as being good enough. In other words, you can't turn in 10 crappy songs and two good ones. You gotta turn in 12 songs that are strong enough that, that they can go out then and pitch those songs to major artists who are on major record labels, putting out big records, and if they land a cut, they own some portion of the publishing. In those days, depending on how much of an advance you got, uh, it also was flexible as to how much of the publishing they would get. Um, you've probably heard the, the expression, a co-publishing deal. That means that the writer and the company are gonna split the publisher's share and the writer still gets 100% of the writer's share. So a typical co-publishing deal in the world of records um, would be, let's say Michael Lasko is a songwriter and I did a co-publishing deal with Universal. They would get 25 or they would get 50% of the publisher's share. I would get 50% of the publisher's share. I would get 100% of the writer's share. So in other words, yours truly would be making 75 cents per dollar coming in the door from the publishing. Now you would get paid uh, in the context of records, you would get paid nine point some odd cents, close to 10 cents uh, for every time that song was put on a disc, whether it's vinyl, CD, cassette, whatever, that's called mechanicals. And that would go through the Harry Fox agency. You would also get a performance royalty, which is um, generated when your song is played in a public arena. Um, and I mean arena, like, yeah, it could be an arena, you know, with the band playing at the Staples Center. It could be a Joe's Bar and Grill coming out of the jukebox. And that's why Joe's Bar and Grill pays ASCAP and BMI $400 a year. And then blah, blah, blah. But more often than not, the money is generated for performance royalties, primarily from film and TV placements, as well as radio play each time your song is performed. Uh, the PROs, the performing rights organizations, um, have magic formulas that nobody, even they, don't understand them, <laughs> I believe. Uh, and they calculate how much you should make for your performance royalty, your, your share of the writer's share, which is 100%, um, based on how many people in St. Louis listened at this hour. And then they extrapolate and go, okay, well, if X number of people were in the audience in St. Louis at 5 p.m. drive time on a Wednesday, that means it was twice that in Chicago, three times that in Los Angeles, blah, blah, blah. They calculate and then you get a, a statement every quarter that says this is how much money you made. 
So uh, that would be primarily uh, in, in the, the world of records and big artists on record labels, most of your income is going to come from radio play. Um, that's been diminished. First of all, the mechanical royalties from putting stuff on discs all but gone because nobody really puts anything on a disc anymore. It's, they certainly don't sell a whole bunch of them. Used to be a pretty substantial income stream, especially if your song landed on a record where they sold 20 million copies of it at 10 cents a unit. That's 2 million bucks. Not so bad. My math is right. Um, so in the traditional sense of publishing, that's how it was done. You got an advance, you made money for them. They would take that money. Um, let's say they advanced you $100,000 and you made $78,000 from your various royalty income streams. You would still technically owe them 13K at the end of the year. Um, and, and they roll that over into the following year. So basically they would do a three-year deal with you and advance you X amount of dollars per year. And they would look to recoup their investment and probably certainly hope to make a profit. Well, it's a whole different kind of publishing deal when it comes to uh, stuff for film and television, especially music library stuff. It's a penny business. It's the money is largely made on performance royalties. Um, there are times where as a songwriter, you might get 2000 3000 5000 $10,000, $25,000 paid up front for a sync fee. Um, that's the money you get up front. But the vast majority of the money, I believe, is made by people who do instrumental music, and they rarely get sync fees for that. And as I said before, it's a penny business, but the pennies add up. So if you've got 2,000 pieces of instrumental music out there in 10 or 20 different catalogs, over time, it's a couple cents here, $1.75 there, $4.22 here, 78 cents there. That all adds up to where we've got members that are making over a quarter of a million dollars a year from that penny business. So those are the two different models. Um, I could do an entire episode on that. I'm sure I've done an episode on that, but there's the short version, <laughs> calling, putting the word short in quotes. Um, what happens after I sign the deal and my music goes into their catalog? I know that people would love to believe that that publisher is so psyched that you now have that piece of music in their catalog that they run down the street telling everybody, hey, I just signed Michael's song, I Love You, Deborah," and you should listen to it because it's really good and you should put it in your TV show. Doesn't work that way. Basically, it goes into a big old fat catalog. They put tags on it like acoustic, love song, singer-songwriter, whatever genres apply. And then either their client reaches out to them and says, hey, I need an acoustic love song for this episode of whatever TV show, or they go online and search their catalog that way. So either they're being helped with the search by the publisher's own staff, or they go online and search the catalog using keywords. And if your song gets picked, then you make money. So it's a pull, P-U-L-L, -L, not pool like let's go swimming. It's a pull business model where your music is being found because it's tagged well and it's in a popular genre that's needed and it, it's not always the case of the best song wins it's the song that is most right in their scene or with their picture or with their mood in the tv show so somebody else may actually have a better piece of music whether it's an instrumental or a song but yours lands in there because it just works better in the scene so that's different than the old model of publishing where, you know, the $100,000 a year advance, which is now about like $20,000 a year advances, I think are probably 
the standard these days, I'm guessing. Uh, but in those days, publishers would in fact sign you and song pluggers who worked for the publisher would go beat on doors on Music Row and go, hey, uh, Garth Brooks, I know you're working on a new record. Check this song out. I think it'd be great for you. Um, other than Nashville, those days are largely gone. Um, there's so much more I could say, but I'm trying to get through all these questions. Okay. Um, so what happens when your music goes into their catalog? That's it. They, they tag it um, with the right stuff to make it findable and more obviously usable by their clients. And then you just sit there and wait. So you could very well do a deal and sign the deal tomorrow. And it may take them 30 to 60 days to get your music technically. And I mean like physically into their catalog um, to get it tagged and everything. And uh, it could sit there, could lay there like a locks for three months, six months, five years. If nobody needs it, um, then it's just gonna sit there. Um, if people find that other stuff is more more better, <laughs> if people find stuff is that other songs beat yours out because they're better with picture, then it could lay there infinitely. Any sharp film and TV composer, or songwriter, or artist who works in the, the business of licensing their music for film and TV will tell you that the Pareto principle always kicks in, that 80% of their revenue comes from 20% of their stuff. That means that 80% of your music that is signed is probably never gonna generate a penny. But 20% will generate enough money that you'll be impressed and earn good money. So you just have to plant enough seeds that you can have that 20% that earns you the money. And frankly, I don't think there's any way to predict what the 20% is gonna be. Other than personal observation on my part, uh, the simpler it is, the more often it will get used. And the other thing you can do to up your chances of having the 20% uh, be used quite a bit is to make music that is in a popular genre of today. Yeah, you can make exceptions and say, because there are exceptions to everything, say, well, I had a song, you know, they wrote in 19, it was like hair band music from the 80s. That's true. Sometimes they need that, but what do they need more frequently today? Dancy, beat-driven party pop would be a much higher probability, uh, have a much higher probability of getting used than 80s hairband music or, you know, Martian space, new age, whatever. So go with where, uh, if you're that, if you're built that way, go where the money is. Just saying. Uh, why don't all the opportunities for film and TV pay sync fees? Uh, to the best of my knowledge, it all started with MTV back in the day where they would use stuff because they used so many pieces of music, like maybe 80, 90, 100 pieces of music in a typical hour of reality show. There were so many people making it that they could get away with not paying a sync fee. And I remember everybody's like, oh, don't work with MTV. They suck. They don't pay sync fees. And there were many other entities that followed. And then the whole reality TV thing just blew up. It became the norm that people don't typically pay sync fees. There are always exceptions, but not that many, where they generate, uh, where they don't, <laughs> they don't pay sync fees very often, okay? So uh, just go with the back end stuff from performance royalties. Um, they know they can get away with not paying sync fees. They use so much music, it would be cost prohibitive if they paid you know, $2,000 per piece of instrumental music 
so they don't do it. The good news is MTV ended up becoming a hero because the people I know who have gotten instrumental stuff in the MTV reality shows, even though they're not getting sync fees from it, make a buttload of money on the back end because the MTV shows are syndicated worldwide and they play several times a day. So it is every smart composer's favorite occurrence when they get music in anything on MTV. It pays well. Um, how long does it take to start making money? Like I said, could be the day after the ink is dry in the contract. Typically, if it's going to make money, I'd say it happens in the first year. But we've had plenty of things that we've heard about where it took years before a certain piece of music started making money. So, as our members have said many times over the years, write, submit, forget, repeat. Don't get so precious about a particular piece of music. Oh, I sent this to Taxi and they forwarded it. Now I'm going to sit by the phone and I am going to wait for that sucker to ring, waiting for a publisher to call and say, I love this piece of music. I am going to put it in the catalog. And then you sit there counting the seconds until somebody uses it in a TV show. Ain't going to happen. Just chill and keep making more music because you want to plant as many seeds as you possibly can. Next question, how much money will I make from a typical placement? There is no such thing as a typical placement. Different shows, different networks, different length of time. If your music is used for four seconds, which is very typical, or it could be used for 19 seconds, or it could be used for 58 seconds, or it could be used for a minute 20, the chances of any of your instrumental cues being used in their entirety for 90 seconds or two minutes, pretty darn slim. Cocktail jazz, maybe, in the context of a restaurant scene where a husband and wife out for a romantic dinner and they're having a long conversation, you could have a piece of jazz that will run for a minute or two. Most of the time, it's a few seconds. It's 12 seconds, 19 seconds, whatever. So, no typical placement because different networks pay different rates depending on their audience size, viewership, um, and the amount of time that you're in there. All these variables kick in, so there is no such thing as a typical placement. Um, next question. How long does it take to get the money once I get the placement? The answer is longer than you'd like to know. Um, man, especially if it's foreign. If you get something placed in a TV show in France and you're an American and it's got to go through SOSEM, which is the PRO in France, and then SOSEM's got to alert ASCAP or BMI or CSAC, whoever you're with in the United States. By the time that money goes from the network in France to the PRO in France, then spends you know three months or six months or a year to make it over to the US and then has to go through the cycle here. I would say on a foreign placement, not unusual that it takes a year and a half, sometimes longer before you see 19 cents. Um, I know it sounds crazy, right? But again, we have members that are making more than a quarter of a million dollars a year doing exactly what we're talking about. So, um, in the U.S., I would say six months is probably typical, if not on the short end. You're not going to have something getting a TV show on MTV or the Discovery Channel or the History Channel or anywhere and get a check a week later, three weeks later, whatever. It takes time. Again, you want to plant as many seeds. That means get as many pieces of music in as many catalogs as you can 
because certain libraries have better connections with one network or one kind of show than others do. So you want to hedge your bets and spread your bets around so that you get really good coverage on your music. Um, what should you do if you don't understand a taxi listing? Um, first thing is put it down, go make a sandwich, come back, look at it 10 minutes later, read it again. Read it out loud. Believe it or not, we actually read the listings out loud here. I know there's still typos in them. I know there's still maybe things in there you don't understand or, or are not worded all that well. But as I've told you before on the show, uh, virtually every listing that leaves here goes through at least four people before it goes out the door. One of the things that I personally do is read it out loud. It's not unusual for me to go down to the A&R office where there are three people sitting and they're not screeners but the people who take care of bringing in the listings, getting the music out to the industry, I drive them a little crazy because I go down there and I read the stuff out loud because inevitably the parts that don't make sense will show up when you read it out loud. So I've got to believe on the receiving end, if you read it out loud, you're going to go, oh, don't you remember in school when you had to read something like, I don't know, in old English um, or maybe... Uh, Oh gosh, what was the one with the pirates and the young kid. Uh, Bria, you're smart. What was that book, The Pirates and the Young Kid? Oh, um, Treasure Island? Yeah, maybe. Yeah, Treasure Island. Take Treasure Island. What was the one? Uh, oh, just any of those ones that are written, you know, like not, in, not with syntax that we use in normal American conversation today. I used to have to read that stuff over and over. I'm not dyslexic. I don't have any learning disabilities that I'm aware of. <laughs> but I would have to read it over and over. And I found that when I read it out loud, I would go, oh, now I get it. So try that. Read the listing out loud. Also, go through and highlight the listing. Highlight the things that jump out. The stuff that's in the first sentence in bold is usually, that's the headline, you know? Sorry, I've got an itchy nose. Um, you you want to make sure to pay special attention to anything that's in bold in the listing, okay? Then go through, take a highlighter, print it out, and highlight the things because people tend to miss stuff where it says they're looking for stuff that's, uh, you know, pushing the envelope a bit or mid to up-tempo and people send in ballads. Well, why don't you just highlight that stuff? So if you do those things, you should understand it on your own. If you don't, then go to the Taxi Forum at forums.taxi.com and ask your fellow members, hey, how do you guys, do you understand what this listing is asking for? And if all those things don't work out, call us. Okay, just call us, 818-222-2464. We do have incredibly good people on our staff that will give you incredibly good customer service. And they, if they don't understand what the listing says, they will go to the people that wrote the listing and say, hey guys, people are having a hard time understanding this. Can you explain it? That doesn't happen very often, but we will go to every possible extreme to make sure that you understand what the listing is looking for. Um, I already talked about uh, getting different feedback on the same song from different screeners, so I'm gonna pass on that one. Um, why do I sometimes get different feedback on the same song from the same screener? That's a toughie, but I can answer it. 
the reason that you will get, let's say that you send in, uh, I send in my favorite hit song, I Love You, Deborah. And I send that in for three different listings, three, count them three. Uh, and uh, Bria is the screener and Bria gets those and she's smiling at me. <laughs> Bria gets the, that song for three different listings and gives different feedback those each time and the members call us up enraged or they go online and post crazy stuff about taxi it's like oh my gosh i got different feedback from this screener on three different occasions for the same song there's a very simple explanation the screeners generally go i think i've heard this before or i know i've heard this before last time i pointed out the fact that the chorus didn't really pop out that much and they could make the chorus beefier so that it does that this time I'm going to mention the fact that the guitar solo is in a super high register and it's really busy. Therefore, it's going to kind of hit like an eight on the annoyance scale if they try to put it in a, a TV show. It's going to conflict with the dialogue. And maybe the third time that Bria gets it, she's going to say, by the way, the fact that this song has a lyric that talks about I love you, Deborah, it makes it really, really hard for that to work in the context of any TV or film pitches because kind of have to be about a, a character named Deborah, and then the music supervisor would probably even say, well, it's too on the nose. So there's the same screener getting the same song on three different occasions and giving different feedback each time. It's largely driven by their innate desire to not give you the same feedback over and over. They want to give you more. But the members take that to mean, oh my gosh, they have a different opinion this time than they did last time. Sometimes, I'm going to make this its own question, what makes a screener forward a song for one listing and return it for another? The same screener. How could they like it for that listing and not for that listing? The answer is quite simple. It just worked better for one than the other. Maybe it was more on target for what the second listing asked for. Um, it doesn't mean the song got better by sitting out there, you know, on a giant hard drive in the sky or a cloud, as it were. Um, it just means that it was mo better for this one than that one. So there you go. Not a mystery. Um, covered that. Ripping right along here. 45 minutes to go and I still got three pages. Holy smokes. Um, Bria, can you make a pinch cooler, please? I'm working up ahead of steam over here. Um, what should you do? This is a great question. What should you do if you can't decide if you should pitch a particular song for a particular listing or not? Best thing you can do is, again, go to the forum and ask your fellow members. Go to the peer-to-peer -peer section of the Taxi Forum. Again, that's forums with an S, forums.taxi.com. Go to the peer-to-peer -peer section and paste the listing in there, copy and paste the listing, the verbiage from listing, the whole thing, and then uh, put a link to your song there and say, hey, fellow dudes and dudettes, uh, I'm thinking about pitching this song for this listing. Do you guys think that's a wise move or less than intelligent move? And you know what? Go with whatever the majority says. My experience is the first two people are often a little overly kind and maybe a little overly generous. So I tend to personally discount what the first couple people say because they're nice people and they, they want to make you feel good. Um, doesn't mean that they're wrong all the time, 
but take the entirety of the comments and literally do a little math. Don't give it any magical thinking where you want to send it in. So you're trying to, you know, read that or project that into what they're saying. Actually say, okay, respondent number one said do not. Respondent number two said do not. Respondent number three said do. Do a little math, figure it out. Um, what does it mean when I see don't submit stiff or MIDI driven music in a listing? And there could be variants of the way we say that. Sometimes we'll say obviously quantized, um, obviously MIDI driven. Um, sometimes it says stiff and synthy. Basically what that means is they want on the receiving end, the industry people want stuff that feels natural. Unless of course you're doing like, you know, um, a chiptune thing where, you know, it's for a video game and it should sound like Mario Brothers. They don't expect that to have a lot of human feel in it. But what they're looking for is everybody uses samples. Everybody uses virtual instruments these days, practically everybody. Um, they want the music to sound better than that. The, the bar has been raised. The quality bar and the expectation bar have been raised on the industry side. They're looking for music that just sounds better. Um, again, it doesn't have to sound like Hans Zimmer did it, but if you've got a, a drum part that's clearly a drum machine and it sounds very stiff and robotic, um, then and you get that feedback from the taxi screeners, you get that feedback from your fellow members on the forum, then go by um, uh, Easy Drummer or Superior Drummer and learn how to use those things. They're really not that hard. And they have, uh, you know, basically a knob that's kind of a human factor in there that injects a little bit of slop into the timing, almost imperceptible, but um, you don't want all your hits having the exact same dynamics. So, you know, like a downbeat on the, the first downbeat of a measure is gonna have a little more impact than the trailing beats after it. So all those things uh, go into making something sound human and that's what they're looking for. So when you see a listing, which is many of them that says, you know, please don't submit anything that's obviously synthy, which usually means like a lot of really bad old fashioned synth patches that sound just really edgy and sawtoothy and old. They, they don't sound like the current state of the art synth patches. That's not going to fly. Something that's obviously MIDI driven and, and obviously quantized again, <laughs> Not good. <laughs> I'm never going to do that again on a camera. This one's a biggie. Pay attention, class. What does broadcast quality mean? All of us who are experienced, itch my back. All of us who are experienced know what broadcast quality means. And if I can take a bow for a second, because I'd love to, the words broadcast quality were never used in the context of the music industry to the best of my knowledge prior to Taxi using it. I stole it from Panasonic in one of their brochures for a, a professional video camera. They said, professional broadcast quality video camera. And I went, that's it. Because we were having a hard time explaining the difference between demo quality, which means that sounds like a demo and you instantly know that. Or Michael Jackson did this in a world famous studio with Bruce Swedine sitting at the console. And there was no terminology that described the mid-ground. And the mid-ground is something that sounds well-recorded enough well-balanced mix-wise enough that you could put it out on air today in its current form. It's not a demo that has to be redone and it's not a 24-track 
um, super digital thing done in a multi-million dollar studio uh, with the advent of the Alesis ADAT and you know uh, good little home uh, consoles and other gear um, we started getting stuff that started, sounded pretty darn good and was definitely good enough to go in a TV show but there was no descriptor for that hence broadcast quality so what does broadcast quality mean? It means that, again, it sounds better than a demo um, and probably not as good as a state-of-the-art recording, although a lot of home stuff is getting there these days. Uh, it also has, it, it implies that the vocals are well-performed. You, you could have a track that's super well-engineered from a technical perspective. The bass sounds great, the kick drum sounds great, the snare sounds great, the guitars sound great and things are well balanced but if you've got a vocal that sounds lackluster or a little pitchy or just inappropriate for that style of music you lose your broadcast quality badge so there's more that goes into the term than just simply engineering people want to believe that it's a technical term but it's really not at least you know being the guy that stole it from panasonic i can tell you at the time that i thought to myself this describes the overall thing is it good enough to be put out in a TV show today? It could be that it's just a simple guitar vocal. Um, I'm trying to think of an artist, you know, but somebody that that's, you know, sounds like they swallowed a, a mouthful of gravel and had way too many scotches last night uh, and chain smoked on top of it. But that vocal is rough and raggedy ass as it is. And the acoustic guitar, which sounds like it's got rusty strings and it really hasn't been tuned recently, maybe it's tuned at the factory in 78, um, you could have that gravelly vocal and that guitar that sounds like crap and still be broadcast quality in the context of a certain type of song. If it's a Tom Waits-ish song that is supposed to sound like that and the scene is a you know, kind of a gritty, rusty, sweaty, down in, down in your luck kind of scene, that just might be broadcast quality in the context of that scene. Now, if you played that same piece of music against a polished, slickly produced pop record, they're going to sound dramatically different. But in the context, which is one of my favorite words in the whole world, in the context of a certain listing or a certain scene, that Tom Waits kind of thing, could be broadcast quality. So there you go. It's malleable. Um, what does it mean when I see universal lyric mentioned in the listings? Universal lyric means that you've got a lyric that could probably work in a bunch of different scenes. It doesn't have references to specific names, dates, times, places, brands, or profanity. Um, that's a laundry list that we made up here at Taxi and the rest of the industry has used it freely. Um, it's not that we're geniuses, we're just the first people that had to actually put this stuff down in print. So, if you've got a song, uh, and I've used this example a million times, um, I met Susie under the Eiffel Tower on Christmas Eve in Paris, that's going to be really hard to place. But if you talked about the way Susie makes you feel when I'm with her, the rest of the world stops around me. That could be used anywhere. Um, so that's the difference between a lyric that's not universal and one that is. I could sit here and give examples all day long, but in the, um, you know, in my effort to be brief and to the point today, I'm just going to leave it at that. That if there's anything in your lyric that points to a specific 
name, date, time, place, brand, or profanity, it's liable to pull it out of contention. Now that becomes a little less important if your song is going to be used in the context of background source music. Uh, you're looking at a scene where two people are in a bar and they're having a discussion in the booth at the bar and you hear a jukebox or some other form of music being played in that bar from ostensibly 50 feet away. Oh, it sounds kind of like that and it sounds roomy. You can't tell what the hell the lyrics are saying. Universal lyrics don't really matter there. But to the library who's going to sign that song, they'd much prefer to sign something with universal lyrics because they could pitch it for that bar scene. They could also pitch it for a scene where the music is up front and you can hear every lyric. So they want to sign music that has the highest probability of usability down the road. Therefore, it's always best to default to a universal lyric. That said, if you have a piece of music that sounds like... Um, uh, oh gosh, what's the famous ZZ Top song? Bree is gone. What the hell, old man? I have no idea what you're talking about. You guys will know. Anyway, if you have a song that has that vibe, um, and you've got uh, Louisiana, the state Louisiana, in in your lyrics somewhere, uh, Tush, yes, that's what it was called, right? Bria, gosh, these kids today, these kids, uh-oh, they're getting buffering on the other end. No, no buffering. Anyway, if you've got a song that is so good, the spirit of it is so good, the playing is so good, the groove is so good, and it's an identifiable sound or style that gets used a lot like that ZZ Top song. You can use that in a progressive motorcycle insurance commercial. You could use it in a rough and tumble fight scene outside of a roadhouse bar. You could use it in all kinds of places. So if you've got a song that is so good in every other regard, but it talks about Texas or Louisiana in it, it's probably okay because it's still going to be usable about 80% of the time when they're pitching it. Um, Are people on the industry side really willing to listen to simple guitar vocal demos? The answer is yes, and the answer is no. Uh, it's, there are two kinds of people in this world, people I like and those who I don't. I'm kidding. Uh, look, some people want to hear the song, and they, they prefer to hear it in a stripped-down form because they want to infuse their own vision of how it should be finished. They some producers, some A&R people, some artists, want to, they get more emotional buy-in when they hear a song in its raw form. Now, that said, it better be freaking excellent. Every syllable of every word in that song has to be perfect. And I don't mean sung perfectly. I mean lyric craft has to be perfect. The melody has to be fresh and just hooky as can be, catchy as can be. Uh, the kind of song where you know two-thirds of the way through the first verse, you can almost feel that chorus coming, and when the chorus hits, you go, holy crap, that's a hit. That can be done with nothing more than a piano and a vocal or a guitar and a vocal. Your level of writing craft has to be super, super, super strong. Um, so much of the music that's on the charts today is beat-driven, dancey pop music, where the track matters 
I hate to say more, but I kind of feel that way sometimes, where the track is so catchy and so fresh in and of itself that it is almost a hit record without the lyric or without the melody or without the artist. Um, in a perfect world, you want both. You want something that could be played on its own, that could be sung a cappella, and the melody and the lyrics and the rhythm, the phrasing of the lyric are so good and firing on all cylinders. If you've got that, hopefully you can only make it even better with a great track underneath it. Um, so that's why I say both. There are some people in the industry that prefer to hear something stripped down so that they can add their own ideas of how it should go. There are others that want to hear it more fully develop, developed and will go, oh, that would be great for Christina or that would be great for this artist or that artist. So it's both. Both answers are correct. Um, why does my recording quality have to be good for just guitar vocal demos? Uh, people discount poor recording quality. And I'm not talking about you've got to go out and win a Grammy with that guitar vocal demo, but you know what? If you send something in that sounds like it was done on a mono realistic, as in Radio Shack realistic, cassette player, and the acoustic guitar sounds like it was being played with a razor blade, and the vocal is just like so sibilant that it's painful, I'm sorry, but that those painful aspects of your recording are not going to allow the goodness that lives in the song to be heard. We would all like to believe that your song is just so freaking good that it can rise above those impediments, but you know what? Some impediments are just too big to overcome. So you've got to have at least a B plus or an A minus acoustic guitar sound. You've got to have an A minus to an A plus vocal sound. Now, you may not be the world's greatest singer on that stripped-down acoustic demo, but sometimes the, the person who wrote the song really can, um, what's the word I'm looking for, interpret the lyrics better than a stranger can. So even though they might be a little pitchier, their voice might be a little weak or a little raspy, sometimes, not all the time, but sometimes, in the context of a song that's being pitched to another person who's going to sing it better, uh, it's okay, you can get away with that sometimes, and I'm underlining sometimes, I'm italicizing it, I'm making it bold, then I'm hitting it with a yellow highlight. I said sometimes, please don't bark down our screener's throats. <laughs> Barking down a throat, oh well, you get the idea. Don't get pissed off at the screeners if they say the, the, you know, acoustic, the sound of the acoustic guitar and the vocal performance killed it. Because um, it's sometimes you can get away with that stuff because the emotion is captured and it's magical. But there is another school of thought that says, you're, let's say you're pitching a song to Christina Aguilera. I would get a female vocalist that sings like her in her key. What, listen to some, uh, some of Christina's songs. Most big artists have a key that they're most comfortable in. And if you listen to an album with 12 songs on it, you're going to find seven or eight or nine songs that are going to be all in the same key. Record your song, your demo in that key. Get a female vocalist who is at least in her ballpark to sing it in that key and preferably in cop her style to some degree. 
because you want to make it easy for Christina or whoever the artist is or their A&R person or the president label to go hear it and go, oh man, she'd be great on that. You want to make it easy. You want Christina singing your chorus before that first chorus is over. Don't give it to her in a key that makes it hard for her. Um, why do listings that ask for songs for other artists tell me that my vocals have to be really good? I think I just covered that. Aren't they going to recut the song, record a new vocal anyway? Yeah, they are, but I think I just covered that in the last question. Um, I only do a certain type of music. Let's say it's 90s guitar rock, and the music industry and taxi don't ask for what I do anymore. What should I do? Well, the old school thinking was just keep doing what you do, man. Stay true to yourself and eventually the industry will come around. If you're 52 years old, you don't want to hear that because you could be dead by the time the industry comes back to what you're doing. Um, I, I don't disagree with that, but time is not on your side. So what should you do if you do a style of music and the industry isn't looking for it anymore? Be flexible, be adaptive. You will find that there is probably something else that you can do with the talent and skill set that you have that you just never thought of. And that's one of the benefits of belonging to Taxi is we help you realize stuff like this. So you know what, let's take this guitar rock thing and throw it out. Let's say that you are a country songwriter um, and you've discovered over a period of a couple of years that you're probably not gonna get to the level of the master craftspeople who write songs in Nashville, that you just don't have the time um, to invest in, in developing your craft to that level, and you go wah, 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 go home with your tail between your legs. I would say, hold on, Baba Louie, stop right there. Don't walk out of your bedroom studio, and here's why. Because you are already experienced at getting a really good acoustic guitar sound when you record your songs, aren't you? And the answer, of course, is yes, Michael, I am. Well, guess what? Uh, watch any one of those gator killing shows on TV like Swamp People, and you will hear that they have a bunch of cues in there that are just twangy, nothing probably but an acoustic guitar just doing open, you know, brown, 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 you know, arpeggiated open chord strums combined with maybe a little uh, bottleneck on a, on a dobro on top of it, maybe a harmonica. So it's got one, two, three instruments in it. Could you do that? Hell yeah, because you are already good at recording acoustic guitar. So now you've found a way to use your talent, use your guitar, and use your home studio to open up a whole other world for you when you were just ready to call it a day and give up because you're not gonna be a hit country songwriter. Well, I, you know, geez, look at uh, Stephen Baird or Matt Hurt or Chuck, uh, well, I can't think of Chuck's last name. Henry. Chuck Henry, thank you. See, he's got two first names. It's always, you know, throws me. Um, you know, any one of those guys or our other guys that I'd love to refer to as six-figure members, um, almost all of them wanted to be a rock star or a country star or something. And then they came to the road rally, the taxi, taxi's free convention. The light went on and they went, I can take my skill set and reorient. And now I can just record acoustic guitar cues, swampy cues. I don't have to write a lyric that's incredibly good. I don't have to sing a vocal that's incredibly good. 
I don't have to go find a female singer for the songs I write in the context of the female gender. I don't have to mix songs with background vocals or lead vocals. There are all these things you don't have to do. All you have to do is record one good acoustic guitar track and a dobro over it and make it 90 seconds long with a buttoned ending and boom, you're there. And you can make a six-figure income doing that. So that's what I would do before I'd go home with my tail between my legs. Um, this was a question from a member. Look at that. I'm on on track time-wise. Uh, this was a question from a member. I think it was after I did the last Taxi 101 a couple or three years ago. It was a great episode this past Monday. I wish Michael would have covered that forwards don't automatically mean a placement. He said that some have been contacted two to three years after the music has been forwarded, but I wish he would gone, have gone more into just because your music gets forwarded, it doesn't mean that the company, being a library, a label, publisher, etc., will contact you. Uh, yeah, guess what? <laughs> it's like, I'm trying to think of a good analog for that, but uh, yeah, when your music gets forwarded, it just means we thought it was good enough and on target enough that that company would want to hear it for that thing that they just asked for. Um, we have proof that we send it. We keep very meticulous records about all this stuff. And plus, you can go to our forum, which is at forums.taxi.com, and look at the success stories part of the forum. And you will see tons of members that are getting deals with libraries, with uh, regular publishers, occasionally with record labels, and they're getting placements all the time in TV shows and occasionally movies or commercials. So the listings are real and the forwards actually do take place, but some people are like, dude, I sent my music in, you forwarded it, and nothing happened. Nobody called to sign me. Well, it's not like they're under some legal obligation that if we think the music was good enough and on target for what they're looking for, they have to sign you. I, I don't know where anybody got that idea, but you know, look, I realize we are at Taxi, at the intersection of talented people who are amateurs in the context of they don't have professional experience yet. So Taxi brings those two worlds together, the professional industry side that needs music and frequently people who are amateurs, and I mean that in the nicest possible way, and I'm not being facetious, and we bring those two entities together, amateurs and professionals. So I can understand why an amateur might not understand that just because your music is being sent to somebody, um, they're, they're under no obligation to sign you. They may listen to it and go, that's a great piece of music, not really what I need. Or I've got 10 of those already, I don't need an 11th one. So there is no guarantee that they're gonna sign you. But again, write, submit, forget, repeat. Because if you do that often enough and just play Johnny Appleseed with your songs, get them out there as many places as you can or instrumentals, eventually they are gonna get signed and eventually some of them will end up in a TV show or a film or a commercial or what have you. So write, submit, forget, repeat. Got it? Get it. Um, let's see. That's it. I've got 23 minutes left to answer your questions if you'd like, or I could just call it a day. So if you guys just go, bye-bye, Lasco.
I will bid you adieu and see you in two weeks. Um, otherwise, hit me with a few questions and I'll hit you back with some answers. And Peter Rahill says, taxi at an intersection. Uh, interesting metaphor. You bet your butt, Peter. Windchime says, great information. Paul says, how long has it been since your last fishing trip? <laughs> uh, it's been two years and two months. Um, Skyler Gentulin is asking uh, if you can talk about dis dispatch. Oh, yes. Uh, who was it? Skyler? Skyler. Skyler wants me to talk about taxi dispatching. You know what? I will. Um, Taxi Dispatch was created 18 years ago in the year 2000. Uh, all of a sudden, we started getting a lot of requests from libraries who were trying to fill orders for their clients, often music supervisors, and they needed stuff very quickly. Because remember, back in the olden days, we used to run listings primarily for record labels and publishers that worked with record labels, and the listings would run for 30 days, 60 days, or 90 days. And so our members had a very long time to get, get it together and send music in. We also had a long time to get the music to the people in the industry. Then all of a sudden we started seeing an influx of music supervisors calling us directly. Sometimes libraries would call and say, I need XYZ kind of music. Uh, I've got a supervisor I work with all the time and they need XYZ genre and we don't have enough of it or they're not interested in what we've got. Can you find me something by Monday? So we created this quick turnaround thing called Taxi Dispatch. And it's an additional, I wanna say like 35 cents a day or 42 cents a day, whatever, we prorate it. So if you're already nine months into your membership, you don't have to pay for a whole year of Taxi Dispatch. You can join for the last three months of your membership year. And we actually have a calculator that will do that automatically for you online or the staff can do it if you call here. So if you upgrade to Taxi Dispatch, um, you get those listings. Typically there are three, four, five of them in any given week, but things have shifted over the years. About three, four years ago, um, it got to the point where almost, I would say 80% or greater of the listings coming into us because of the, the shifting nature of the record industry as we used to know it, and the dramatic increase in film and TV requests. Um, so much of the stuff we got for our regular listings was film and TV and with much shorter timelines than 30 days, 60 days, or 90 days, because that's just the nature of, especially the TV industry, because they're working on stuff on a weekly basis. So we thought about killing Taxi Dispatch, because gee, why did we need it if, uh, if everything was going to quicker turnaround times? But we realized something. We sat down and really took a look. I think at the time we probably had like a thousand or more members that had chosen to do Taxi Dispatch. We looked at them almost to the person. They were instrumental cue composers. Um, and the feedback that we'd gotten from them was, um, do more people get more deals through Dispatch? And frankly, the answer was yes. And if you go on our forum and, and uh, at forums.taxi.com, and look at the taxi dispatch thing, you'll see people say, yeah, you know, I got this deal through dispatch or that deal through dispatch. So what then is the difference between the regular listings that go out and the upgraded listings that go out via taxi dispatch, which again is like, 
I don't know, 30 or 40 cents a day prorated. Um, quite frankly, we look at the dispatch members like they've paid a little more money and they're generally our longer term members. By the way, you should not join Taxi Dispatch until you're starting to get at least get forwards through regular taxi. That's why we don't advertise it a lot. We don't talk about it a lot. We know that people just get super excited. Oh, look at that. You know, another uh, 200 listings a year and it's only, you know, $130 a year. Shoot, I'll go for that. And they sign up for it prematurely and then they just get disappointed. So we don't want that to happen. So we don't talk about it very much. But I will tell you that we changed the nature of dispatch uh, a few years ago when we realized that the we were getting skinny on, on instrumental listings. We don't know why, but we just went through a period where things were getting skinny on the instrumental side. So we started taking most of our instrumentals and shoving them out to the members who paid for dispatch because that's what they seemed to do and what they seemed to want. Anytime we ran a dispatch listing that was for an instrumental thing, they would go crazy and submit for it so we knew we were making them happy. So that's where we left it. Dispatch... Um, we do, I will say, sometimes we throw the dispatch members a bone that the other members don't get, which is that we will send out um, listings that are just a little juicier. Um, sometimes it could be, uh, sometimes it's just regular old libraries looking for more of this or that to fill up their catalog. Something has gotten a little long in the tooth and they want newer, fresher material. That's fine. Other times, it's they've got a working relationship with a supervisor on a particular show and they need something you know in the next five days because that supervisor has asked them for that particular thing that they don't have enough of or don't have anything at all so that's what taxi dispatch is um, we do to try really hard to provide good value for our members that pay that upcharge to be dispatch members but again don't join Taxi Dispatch until you've been a member at least for a half a year, if not a year, and you're getting forwards. Now, if you join Taxi and you start getting forwards, especially for instrumental cues right out of the gate, go ahead, join Dispatch a month or two later. But we don't push people into it. Um, next question, please. Um, sorry, I'm just writing one down for you. Um, I'll just read it out. Sometimes there are tons of forwards for one listing, yeah. say 50 to 80 right. or more. Does the client actually listen to all of them? Um, the question was, sometimes there are a lot of forwards for a particular listing. I, I've got to say, lately we've been getting a few requests uh, for um, percussive, percussive stuff. Not necessarily the big taiko drum stuff that you would hear in like uh, theatrical trailers. Um, a lot of TV commercials. I was just talking to the A&R staff this morning. I, I spent much of the weekend sitting uh, on the bed in our bedroom with the TV on very low in the background, and I was working on stuff for the taxi transmitter, our newsletter. And every now and then, I'd find myself looking up the TV, and almost every case, it was for a commercial that had a lot of percussion, percussion going on. And I made a note of that, um, just like, oh yeah, we've had a few listings for that. That's a pretty easy bar pretty easy mark to hit. Um, again, they're not necessarily looking for the world's best percussionist or the most inventive percussion. Oftentimes, they're looking for stuff that's really simple, but somehow impactful, um, or just lends itself well to a particular kind of, of picture in that commercial, video in that commercial. So when we run those listings, we might get in three, four, five hundred submissions for something like that, which is a pretty high number. Um, the screeners may find that 30% of it 
it is there's no reason not to forward it. It's high quality, it's well done, it's well thought out, and it's usable in the context of TV commercials or trailers, what have you. So we forward it. And you're right, maybe we forward 50, 80, 100 pieces of music, and you're like, wow, I can't believe they forward that much stuff. Believe me, when we do that, we reach out to the person who ran the listing before we send it over and say, by the way, we got a lot of great submissions for that, and we're sending you, you know, 78 forwards. Um, I can't guarantee that anybody listens to anything we send them, but they asked for it. Um, and then again, if you honestly think, I know you would love to believe that they're going to sit there and listen to 120 seconds of your beats, they're not. They're going to listen to the first three, four, five seconds, and if they like it, they're going to fast forward to about a minute in, they're going to fast forward to 78 seconds in, and they're going to let it run to the end. They're going to go, I like this, and they're going to shove it in the good pile. Maybe at a later time, they'll go through and listen to the entire thing. But they're going to spot check it. What they're looking for when they spot check is, does it come in? Great. Does it build? Does it have a developmental arc? Does it go out with a bang? And is it a cool beat that I could see being used in a Land Rover commercial? Yes, it does. Boom. They take it. So, yes, we've sent them 78 pieces of music, but they're not spending a minute and a half times 78 pieces of music. And so what if we sent them 78? Would you rather get a lot of something great or not? Think about it. Ice cream. Is there such a thing as too much? There's my point. Next question. Um, Peter Rahill asks, who is it you have most wanted to teach or lead at a road rally that you have not been able to get? Tough question. Peter Rahill asks, who have I wanted to get at a road rally? is either a teacher or an interview subject at the road rally that I've not been able to get. Um, how about if I tell you about some really close calls? Um, Joe Walsh and I have a, a good friend in common. And one year somebody dropped out uh, very close. Um, oh, Diane Warren got like deathly ill two days before the road rally. And I called my friend, he said, let me call Joe Walsh. and. Joe said, I'll do it. When is it? And my friend said, Friday morning. And Joe said, oh, I'm going to be out of town. If they can move it to another date, I'll do it. Couldn't really do that. I asked the Eagles not to go on that tour, but they wouldn't listen to me. Um, so Joe Walsh is one. I would love to interview Joe Walsh. Um, Ringo Starr um, was another one that we actually had contact with, but again, schedules didn't line up. I was kind of nervous about that one, frankly. Um, one of my all-time favorites uh, was Lamont Dozier. Um, I've often said that there are only a couple people I've met in 40-some years of being in the music industry where I felt like um, their, their head was opened up and the hand of God poured talent into them, and they were just born that way. Most people have to really work at it. Lamont Dozier is one of those people that has true God-given talent. That guy, first of all, he's just a spectacularly good human being. Sweet, sweet, sweet man with a giant heart, and I just love him. Um, that, that was an interview that I, I wish I could do over and over again. Um, but frankly, I feel that way about uh, Jeff Emmerich was another one, um, the Beatles engineer, where uh, Shirelli and I went out with Jeff Emmerich to dinner probably 
three, four weeks before the road rally and spent uh, three or four hours at dinner with him. And we were like two little kids. Well, Mr. Emmerich, can you tell us about this? Can you tell us about that? And we're taking selfies like crazy outside the restaurant. But that was magical because I knew that I wasn't the only person in the ballroom who my entire life changed when I saw the Beatles on the Ed Sullivan Show. I was nine years old, said, that's what I want to do. Uh, I want to be in the music industry. I know there are many, many, many of our taxi members who were influenced by the Beatles. So to have a guy sitting there answering questions for me that I knew other people in the room also wanted to know the answers to um, about arguably, not arguably, for the most important band in the history of music. Um, and I don't want to get letters from people that disagree with me on that. It's my show, that's what I think, damn it. Uh, anyway, that that was magical to me. And, and believe me, the, like this weekend, I was sitting on the bed, working on my laptop, and uh, I saw something, oh, I saw Jeff Emmerich on LinkedIn. And I just like shut my eyes for a moment and flash back to, he knocked on my hotel room door. I get a suite every year for the road rally and um, he's a very responsible gentleman. And we were hitting the stage, I believe at nine o'clock and at like 7.45, um, he calls me and says, I'm standing outside your hotel room door. I don't have anywhere else to go. May I come in? So we let him in. We had like a living room, dining room area in the room. and. I said to my wife, Jeff Emmerich is here. Can you go entertain him while I get in the shower? So she served him, uh, you know, coffee or tea and crumpets or something. And uh, I was just, I'm sitting there pinching myself going, holy crap, my life was inexorably changed because of the Beatles. And this man was there in the room with them and had so much to do with it. And now he's having tea sitting on my couch. So that was cool. Uh, next question, please. Uh, Wind Chimes Music asks, if I get some songs licensed, but then I get married, does changing my name present a problem? If uh, Wind Chimes wants to know, if I get some songs licensed and then I get married, does that present a problem? Um, I'm not a music attorney, so just take this answer with a grain of salt. First of all, you really want to get married? I'm, I'm just kidding. Um, uh, and I'm assuming you're female, though today you can't make any assumptions about this stuff, but you say you're going to change your name. And um, most wives seem to take the husband's last name. Forgive me if I'm wrong. I don't want any letters, okay? Um, I don't think it's a problem. And frankly, what I've seen a lot of people do um, is use your given surname um, and then append your new name. So, you know, like, um, Deborah Smith Jones and, and hyphenate it for a few years and then slowly drift away from your original name um, and I, I just don't think it's a big problem. Next. Right. Sebastian Borromeo asks, I'm living in Europe but I have a U.S. bank account still. Is it better to keep the U.S. bank account and affiliate to a U.S. PRO if I want it to be more efficient? So I'm guessing he's asking whether he should switch to a... So this gentleman lives, and his last name is Borromeo? Yeah. Good, great last name. Man, oh man, I love that name. Um, he lives in Europe and has a bank account there, a bank account in the U.S., wants to know if he should affiliate with a, a U.S. performing rights organization like ASCAP, BMI, or CSAC, and keep his American bank account because it just makes the, the money flow more easily and more quickly. 
again, I'm not a music attorney and I'm not sure that I'm 100% right about this, but I'm guessing I'm right. The answer is, yeah, why not? Um, why not? And, and I believe that you can have wherever, you, let's say you're living in France and your um, PRO there would be Sassim. Um, if you write stuff and send it to an American library, I don't see why the library, and let's say you, you set up a, a publishing company, which again, you, you don't need employees, you don't need you know to go out and rent an office or anything, you just need a publishing company in name because the PROs would prefer to send a check for, um, you know, let's say you keep 100% of your publisher share and your writer share, they wanna send a check for each because very often they're different. So let's say that you do um, Bromeo music, uh, it, you know, you set that up as a DBA, doing business as in the United States, and also you are Sebastian Bromeo as the writer. Um, you could have all that reside in the US and probably be just fine. But again, I'm not an expert. I just pretend to be one. Um, Let's see, Liz Walker asked, uh, is it likely that a song would be forwarded to an instrumental listing if it was produced with a vocal and the instrumental version is the same production but with the vocal removed? Uh, so the question, I think, Liz, if I'm interpreting this correctly, is you've got a song. Um, let's go back to my favorite song, which is I Love Deborah," And I just strip the vocal out. I hit the mute button on track four and the vocal is muted. And now I just let it run and I submit it. Can you do that is the question, I think. Um, would it be forwarded if it's an instrumental listing? Yes, with a couple of caveats. Number one, sorry, I'm getting a headache. Uh, when you've got a song and you strip the vocal out of it, very often the lack of melody then makes it sound empty and it sounds like a rhythm track, almost like a demo. So you need to put something back in there where the vocal and the vocal melody came out. But if you were to take a flute or a harp or a Fender Rhodes or almost anything and try and play that vocal melody, it's gonna end up sounding like uh, 101 Strings or Ferranti and Teicher or something. Um, so my advice is to, do, uh, to insert, take that version with the vocal taken out and put back about a quarter, a third of the melody. Just hit the notes, the melodic notes that would appear like on the downbeat. So rather than dun 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 dun, that way you get some sense of movement, some sense of melody to carry it, and it doesn't just sound like chords and a drum, or drum, you know, drum track with chords over it, because that's a lot of times what it sounds like when you strip out the vocal. Um, and the other caveat is if they're looking for uh, instrumental cues, that's not going to work. And here's why I'm going to make this a standalone answer. What's the difference between an instrumental and an instrumental cue? I believe that I covered this in part one, but I'll cover it again. The difference between an instrumental and an instrumental cue is this. An instrumental is more like a song. It's structured like a song. It's probably got an intro, a verse, a chorus, maybe even a B verse lifting up to the chorus. It's probably got a bridge. It's like a, like a song, but without a vocal and maybe some other form of instrument put in there to carry some of the melody. That's an instrumental. An instrumental cue is generally something that's been designed from its inception 
to work, let's say, in the context of reality shows, which is the most you know, frequent use of instrumental cues. And an instrumental cue is largely, um, they usually have like very little intro, and I'm talking like a couple of seconds of intro, um, or maybe no intro at all, and they go right into what you and I would probably think of as the chorus. Um, they leave out the verse, they leave out the, the lift or the B verse or um, the pre-chorus, that's just gone. Um, they leave out the bridge possibly. And what they create is something that is essentially a really short intro or no intro and an A section that runs for 16, 90, or even 120 seconds. And maybe um, the, the things, two things that differentiate it is that it's just a repetitive, almost like a loop, but a re repetition of that instrumental section over and over and over and over for the duration but it's all about the instrument, instrumentation that you add to it and when you add it. So let's say you start out with, um, you know, guitar, bass, and drums. Uh, maybe after 16 bars, you bring in a Fender Rhodes part as well. And then you bring in like little guitar fills as well and you build it up. So it's got these extra layers, seems to give it some forward momentum, which you see is mentioned in the listings a lot. And then boom, somewhere in the middle, you drop it back down to just guitar, bass, and drums again. Go back to the original idea that you started with at the beginning. And then you repeat that process where you build it back up by adding another instrument, another instrument, another instrument, and bammo. This time you take it all the way to the end, bit of a crescendo, and you finish it off with a buttoned ending or a stinger ending, depending on the type of music. So that's the difference between an instrumental and an instrumental cue. Once you become a little more sophisticated in creating cues, then you'll find that there's no exact formula that has to be used in every cue, and you get to understand what the client's like, and you may add something that is like a bridge in the middle, you know, like a middle eight or a middle 16, um, but it still stays within the context of the rhythm and melody and general tone of the original piece, the A section. So I hope that helps. The long answer, right? Uh, one more, and then we're out of here. You got one? Yeah. Oh. Uh, I'm going to choose it quick. <laughs> oh, um, Anna Yarbrough asks, how important is branding uh, or marketing for non-performing artists or composers? Okay, that's a great question. Leave it to Anna. She's smart. And she's, I got to say, um, I'm impressed with Anna Yarbrough. Uh, we, we made eye contact a few times at the Road Rally. I don't believe we've met, but she's getting a lot of stuff right. And she's one of those people who joined Taxi, quickly saw the light and quickly started to hang out with the right people and ask the right questions of the right people. And I see her moving her career along uh, more quickly than a lot of people. So the question again is, how important is branding and marketing for non-performing artists or composers these days? I don't think it mattered much 20 years ago, but have things changed? And I think your perception is on the money. 20 years ago, it didn't really matter because the music library business um, was much different than it is now. And now because home, you know, everybody's got a studio in their laptop. Everybody's got a studio in their desktop computer. Hell, for that matter, everybody's probably got a studio in that. So there's just a lot more music being made by a lot more people. Um, and while I'd like to say that music gets chosen purely based on the music, which it does about 98% of the time, 
I don't think anybody ever puts a piece of music in a TV show or a movie that they don't believe is right for that scene. Okay, so they're not going to say, well, look, Anna Yarbrough did that. Let's put it in there just to throw her a bone. They're not going to do that. Um, is a library going to pitch Anna Yarbrough more frequently than other people in the library? Yes, if they've had good luck pitching her stuff in the past and the music supervisors go with the Anna Yarbrough stuff over and over, she's going to make it to the hot list and get pitched sometimes when other folks might not. But not because she's sucking up to anybody or doing anything else uh, other than making music that the industry wants to, or end users wants to use. Now, here's where the marketing or branding comes in. Um, not as much with music supervisors, but with the libraries you work with, you want to stay in the forefront of their mind without being obnoxious. So how do you do that? Um, you know what? Once a year, do a run of 20 t-shirts that, um, and send them a, a ladies version and a men's version. Um, and come up with something. It could just be, you know, like a ghosty image of your face with your name or something on it, something that's notable, something that's remarkable. And I don't mean like remarkably impressive, but remarkable. Like one person might say, oh, that's a cool shirt. They have remarked to another person. So let's say that it's John Doe's library and John Doe, most music library companies are two, three, four people. They're relatively small companies, most, not all. Um, and you send two t-shirts, a ladies and a men's to that company. I would say that it would be really awesome if the lady who worked there, um, and let's say that she's the person that's uh, responsible for sending the music out to the, the music soups who requested from them. If you were to send her that shirt, are you going to be a little more on the you know forefront of her mind when she's going through the batches of music deciding um, what gets sent? Yes. Is she going to ever send your music because you sent her a t-shirt? No, not because you sent her the shirt. She's not going to go, oh, Anna Yarbrough is super sweet. I can't believe she sent me a free t-shirt. But it's going to somehow subtly remind her. So it might have some small effect. It couldn't hurt. You know what else? I know this is going to sound a little corny. Christmas cards. We used to get like 200 Christmas cards a year at Taxi. Um, and we would tape them to the front desk. And I always felt really good about that. Um, nowadays, because everything is digital, we're lucky if we get three Christmas cards. But you know what? I can name the three companies that sent us Christmas cards last year. And I think that's just a nice touch. You know what else? Here's something not many people get to see. We have taxi note cards. Notice how subtle they are. They don't even have the word taxi on them. They don't say taxi is the greatest thing in the whole wide world. It's just got the cab and look what it's got on the inside. Nothing. You know what I use these for? When somebody in the industry does something that I really appreciate, I'd send a little handwritten note to them and just say, can't believe you did that, man. Thanks, I really appreciate it. Nobody does that anymore. So there you go. With that, I'm going to say adios. Oh, yes. <laughs> Bree is holding up. If you made it this far into the episode, I hope you're a subscriber.
At the very least, see that little blue thumb down there at the bottom of the video frame? Click that sucker and like us. If you really, if you want me to personally forward your music, all you have to do is share this episode with somebody, and I will. I promise. I'm kidding. Anyway, with that, you guys, we will see you in two weeks. Don't forget, next week we're off for the holiday. Be back in two weeks for an episode that you do not want to miss because the guest is spectacular, and you will learn a lot. With that, I bid you a fond farewell. Woo! Woo! The audience goes crazy.